This is a Federal News Network podcast. Law clerks form a largely unseen network of support for the judiciary branch of government. My next guest says clerks lack protection from and the means to redress harassment and discrimination. Sometimes it's the judges that do the harassing and discriminating. For more, the president and co-founder of the Legal Accountability Project, Aliza Schatzman. Ms. Schatzman, good to have you on. Thanks for having me on the show. And you have formed the Legal Accountability Project, and we'll get into what its aims are. But tell us about the job of law clerk. Is this something that people only do temporarily while they're students, or can it be a career? What is the nature of that particular job? Sure. So law clerks are typically fresh out of law school. So this is their first legal job. Increasingly, some federal judges hire folks with one or two years work experience. But it's important to underscore these are very young attorneys at the start of their careers. And for federal employees, so AUSAs, trial attorneys, other folks who appear before federal judges, if you look up at the dais, the young attorneys flanking the judge, those are law clerks. So law clerks tasks vary from chambers to chambers, but basically... They spend one or two years working for and learning from a judge. They conduct research. They write orders and opinions. They go to court with the judge. They assist with judicial decision making. For folks who want to become trial attorneys, it's an excellent crash course in trial lawyering. You learn from the judges and the attorneys you see in the courtroom. And in the best of circumstances, it really creates a lifelong mentor-mentee relationship where your judge will help you get your next job, serve as a reference. What I'm trying to raise awareness of is the worst of circumstances, where mistreatment in chambers can really devolve into a long-term negative relationship between judge and clerk. And judges, particularly life-tenured federal judges, but all judges, there's an enormous power disparity between those folks, the most powerful members of the legal profession, and brand new young attorneys just starting out their careers. Sure. And have you clerked? And what did you experience? Sure. So I served as a law clerk in D.C. Superior Court during the 2019 to 2020 term. D.C. Superior Court is D.C.'s local trial court, but our judges are unique in that they're Senate confirmed for 15 year terms. So unfortunately, beginning pretty much just weeks into the clerkship, I began to experience gender discrimination and harassment by the judge for whom I clerked. He would kick me out of the courtroom and tell me I made him uncomfortable and he just felt more comfortable with my male co-clerk told me I was aggressive and nasty and disappointment. Day I found out that I passed the DC bar exam. So a big day in a young attorney's life. He called me into his inner chambers. He got in my face and said, you're bossy. And I know bossy because my wife is bossy. And it was just devastating. I mean, as I mentioned, this was my first job out of law school. I was a couple months into my legal career. And this person who had enormous power over my life just seemed to be mistreating me every single day. We eventually transitioned to remote work during the pandemic, and I moved back to Philly to stay with my parents. During the six-week period, the judge basically ignored me before he called me up and told me he was ending my clerkship early because I made him uncomfortable and lacked respect for him. So I reached out to D.C. Court's HR because we did not have an employee dispute resolution or EDR plan in place in my courthouse when I was a law clerk that might have enabled me to seek some sort of redress for these workplace challenges. And D.C. Court's HR told me there was nothing they could do because HR doesn't regulate judges. And then they asked me, didn't I know that I was an at-will employee? So after all that, it took me about a year to get back on my feet. But I eventually moved back to D.C., secured my dream job as a prosecutor in the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. And I was two weeks into training there 
when I was alerted, the judge had made negative statements about me during my background investigation that I would not be able to obtain a security clearance and that my job offer was being revoked. Wow. So it sounds like this went from simply being upset to being really angry. <laughs> yes, I know I would I think, be. And I think my story highlights a couple things. It highlights that mistreatment in chambers can really devolve into a long-term negative, a long-term retaliatory relationship between judge and clerk that goes so far beyond just a poor law clerk judge relationship. And it also really highlights some of the other things I talk about, which are some judges act as if believe that they are above the law. And right now they are not subject to anti-discrimination laws like Title VII and the Civil Rights Act. There are very few workplace policies in these courthouses and judicial misconduct policies right now are historically unenforced against these judges, which makes it all enormously difficult for law clerks seeking judicial accountability to get any sort of justice for themselves and accountability for the judges who mistreated them. We're speaking with Eliza Schatzman. She's president and co-founder of the Legal Accountability Project. And before we get into the aims and goals of the project, two questions. One, do you believe it's widespread among clerks? And secondly, what about other judicial branch employees that are not clerks that might be just full-time career employees in the judicial branch that also work for judges, in effect? Sure. Great questions. So there are about 30,000 federal judiciary employees. That's law clerks. That's permanent clerks. That's other courthouse employees. All of those folks are unprotected right now by Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. And permanent courthouse employees face unique considerations Because whereas a law clerk, if they file a complaint, they'll be there for a year or two, and then they can, I hope, get some other job, get away from the judge who mistreated them, permanent courthouse employees will need to stay at that job long term, so they face unique considerations. So it's important to talk about them as well. I believe that this problem of judicial misconduct, harassment, gender discrimination, retaliation, this is pervasive in the federal courts and in the state courts. And what we see is there is just an enormous data discrepancy between the number of law clerks filing formal complaints against judges, which is pretty negligible, and that when the judiciary conducts a rare workplace assessment, for example, the D.C. Circuit conducted one last year, what we see is 57 law clerks reported harassment or retaliation, an additional 134 employees reported witnessing or hearing about problematic behaviors, And while the judiciary leadership continues to say harassment and retaliation are not pervasive in the federal courts, I and other mistreated clerks know differently. All right. So that leads us to the Legal Accountability Project. What does that consist of and what are your aims here? Sure. So the Legal Accountability Project is a new nonprofit I launched recently with a WashU Law classmate, Matt Goodman. We're basically seeking to ensure that as many law clerks as possible have a positive clerkship experience, and then we're extending support and resources to the ones who don't. We have two major fall initiatives that we are working on. The first is a clerkships reporting database, whereby current and former clerks will be able to make a report about their clerkship. They'll be anonymous but they'll report on their judge, good, bad, medium. We want to hear everything. And all the law students at the participating institutions can read all the reports. It's really a way for law students to look out for misbehaving judges and also know the good ones to apply to. The Legal Accountability Project is what I wish existed when I was a law student applying for clerkships, what I wish existed when I was a law clerk facing mistreatment and unsure where to go, and when I was a former clerk engaging in the judicial complaint process. So that is our first initiative, and it'll combat a couple of things. It'll combat the whisper networks, which are currently one of the only ways for law students to find out which judges to avoid. 
And historically, law clerks are unwilling to provide the full scoop to law students for a variety of reasons, fear of reputational damage, fear of retaliation by the judge. So we're trying to combat that. We're also trying to combat the problematic silo effects I see as I'm talking to law schools, where some schools have information on misbehaving judges. They may or may not warn students. But if a couple of schools are hoarding that information, that does nothing for all the other law students applying each year. The second initiative we are working on is a workplace culture assessment of the federal and state judiciaries. As I mentioned earlier, the federal judiciary has been notoriously unwilling to conduct a widespread assessment of workplace culture, which I think is a red flag, either that they know there is misconduct, uh, that they don't want to be unveiled, or that they don't care that much that misconduct is occurring and law clerks are being mistreated. So our assessment is going to be sent to the past 10 to 20 years worth of law clerk alumni from participating institutions. And we're finally going to elucidate data on the scope of the problem, because that is the first step toward crafting effective solutions. This type of data collection analysis hasn't been done before, so we are very excited about it. And I just wanted to touch on that one point you made about somehow this bad experience in the judiciary branch that you had bled over to the Justice Department and the executive branch. And it sounds like maybe an unstated goal is to make sure maybe Justice Department that hires, as you say, people that working in the U.S. attorney's offices are not unduly influenced by a bad judge on the other side of the the government. Absolutely. Yes, that is enormously important. I think some of these Justice Department employees need to really interrogate a negative reference by a judge. I mean, in my case, they looked at this outrageous negative reference that was totally different from everything in my application. They didn't ask any follow-up questions to the judge, so they afforded me no opportunity to defend myself, and they just tossed me aside with no regard for how this would affect my life and my career and reputation. And so... I think employers so rarely give a negative reference as I'm talking to them. They say, well, I would give a lukewarm reference so as to not, you know, cause this type of long-term negative effects, not cause scrutiny to be forced upon myself. I think it's important that legal employers in general, Justice Department officials in particular, absolutely are interrogating these negative references. My concern is that they kind of defer to judges because they're worried Perhaps the judge will retaliate against our Justice Department clients in the future, will rule against us in the future. But that is not a reason to just toss young attorneys aside. Yeah, that would make that particular judge more than just a bad employer. It would make him or her a bad judge. Absolutely. And do you have any significant backers for this project? So we have received privately a lot of support from various aspects of the legal community. There is a lot of interest among law schools in participating. And privately, I've received lots of support from federal judges, from sitting judges who tell me they support what I'm doing. They think it's time to extend Title VII protections. They think it's time to create this type of clerkships database. So we're very excited about the support we've received. Later this summer, we are going to be announcing our initial law school partners, which looks like will be about 10 schools. We hope that eventually every school will come on board and the ones who don't, we will circle back with them next year. And we are already seeing a groundswell from law students who want these resources and who are excited to engage with me on these issues. Aliza Schatzman is president and co-founder of the Legal Accountability Project. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me on the show. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. 
I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village. That was, I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, at, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see 
a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards, two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, From there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating, Um, you know, from historical to current, uh, current times. I just it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so. I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.